Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Melina Lee Williams Haas. I deeply appreciate you listening and taking the time to hang out with me. I will be addressing issues of life, the universe, and everything that are often bogged down and mired in shame and grief, and talk about how they can be repackaged to be useful and gorgeous and fucking awesome for you. So sit back and relax, or you know what? Sit up and freak out. However, you prefer to listen. Let's go. When I graduated high school in 1987, I was getting ready to go into university to study theater. I had been planning on going to NYU since I was probably about five or six years old and was incredibly excited about that. But of course, because I was a poor student, I definitely needed to have a side hustle going in order to have money enough to freaking survive because unlike many of my peers, my parents were not sending me checks. In fact, the money that I had made as a kid doing film and television work was all gone by the time I got to high school. One of my first side hustles was waiting tables, of course, because as an actor, that's like the thing. Like, you're an actor, you go wait tables. Some of that is just sort of old tradition and old school bullshit, but a lot of it is just flexibility. And I know that nowadays, actually, it's a lot less likely that people have that degree of freedom and flexibility that we had back in the day, where you could like run through your shift and be like, I got an audition, I'll see you in half an hour, and then run out and no one even would blink an eye. I don't know if it's still like that, but I know that definitely food service has become a lot more stringent, a lot more rigid in terms of staffing and shit like that. So I don't know. But back in the halcyon days of the late 80s, <laughs> waiting tables was where it was at. So I did that. That last summer after school, I worked at Hands, which I don't even know if the chain exists anymore. But the one I worked in was at a in a spot that actually doesn't exist anymore. It was right across from FAO Schwartz. I believe there's an Apple store there now. It's across the Plaza Hotel and the Paris Theater, which is a little tiny, very old school movie theater where my father actually used to be the manager back when I was a kid in the mid seventies. And then I realized that there were a whole series of job opportunities I was missing out on that were perfect for actors. And that was working on the phones, right? Customer service work, banks always need people. There's always a need for someone to answer a phone. And as an actor, you're thinking, okay, this is great. This is easy. I can just sit on my ass. I can do other shit, study my lines, you know, send out resumes and headshots and stuff while I'm working on the phone. So I started looking into that. And one night, well, late, I'm up watching television and this ad comes up for the one line, the party line, and I'm going to have to go back and do a little bit of historical infill here for you young'uns. So prior to cell phones, 
we had landlines. I mean, everyone knows that. Okay, fine. Prior to landlines being individually assigned to people, they used to be assigned to buildings, right? So a building would have uh, a phone line and then people would come and pick up the phone and then yell at whoever was supposed to get the phone to actually get the phone. It was called a party line, not because it was a party, woo, but because many parties had access to it. And you've probably seen movies with these old school operators sitting in front of these boards with 80,000 plugs and wires and they were moving one plug to the other to connect people literally from phone to phone, which is insane when you think about it nowadays. It's fucking crazy. Um, party lines were not a common thing in New York City by the time I was growing up. They were still being used in rural areas, was familiar with that. But by the 60s, people were getting their own fucking phones. But the concept of the party line came back in the 80s, and of course with a little saucy twist, because now it was being used as a way to meet and connect with other people. So you could call up, and it was an 800 number, so you were now being charged, and you would be put into a quote-unquote room with other folks, and you would have to figure out how to start a conversation, engage in conversation, keep track of who's in the conversation, and then all of this was being monitored by folks who were sitting in an office somewhere, and this is where the operators came in. And it was the job of the operators of the party lines to make sure that no one was being abusive, and if someone was being abusive, to kick them out, possibly ban them, give them a warning, whatever else. And, of course, one of the other jobs of the operators of the one line was to make sure that no one was doing phone sex in those rooms. Not necessarily because they were super judgmental about phone sex, but because there was another line that they wanted you to call if you indeed wanted to do phone sex. It was far more expensive. So like while the one line might have cost you 10 cents a minute, the sex lines would cost you like a dollar a minute or something along those lines. And when I first decided I was gonna do this, I was thinking, okay, you know what? I'm a sex positive person. I'm a pervert and a weirdo. I can do phone sex, that'll be great. But you start off on the one line when you first get in there. They start you in there just to see how you're gonna do. And so you're in there and you're sitting there in front of a screen. Keep in mind, please, this is before any sort of user interface meant to be friendly was invented. So you're sitting there with like DOS prompts having to program in every fucking thing. And each human being was connected with a number and a little cursor that would blink next to them when they were speaking. So you could keep track of who was speaking that way. So you'd have to sit there and look at the cursor and see who was swearing, for example. So you could go to that person and pull them up into what's called a private chat and say, look, you need to fucking adjust your language. I know, but this is a clean room and you can't, you want to say some shit like that. Here's a number, go to this other dirty room. Um, and so one of our other jobs, of course, was to keep the conversation flowing. We did not always identify ourselves as operators. We would sometimes just be a potential sexy voice in the darkness. Because you have to imagine, like you're just sitting there at home and there's just suddenly 12 people yelling in your ear, right? It's a lot. I don't understand why people did it. From a operator perspective, I was like, oh man, like what? But what was fascinating to me is that like anytime anything happens when humans are involved, immediately a subculture builds up. 
So you have some people who are on there every night. You start to know the nicknames. You start to know the voices. And one of the things that was sort of an achievement among the regulars was to be able to form a relationship with any of the folks who were working there. So once they could figure out, because they would hear our voices night after night and be like, I think she's an op and not actually someone whose pants into whom I can get. So you pull someone up and they'd be like, are you an op? And they'd be like, yeah, obviously I'm an op. I just pulled you up. Stop saying bad things. So then they would try to chat you up and get in because of course that's, I don't know why people think that's some sort of achievement. I guess it becomes a challenge because potentially any other woman that these, because it was always guys, any other woman that this guy might chat with could possibly be an actual person who they could exchange phone numbers and get together with. But with an op, there's this untouchability because of course we are absolutely under no circumstances supposed to mess around with people who are calling in. First and foremost, because who the fuck are they, right? Prior to the internet, you got to remember, there was no way at all to scream people. People trip out about like, oh, everyone on the internet is a potential serial killer. But the cases where people are, are, meet folks on the internet and are harmed are actually pretty rare. Stranger on trailer violence is rare. Usually people don't go through all of that trouble to harm someone when there are plenty of people far more accessible. Friends and family are the first targets for people who have malicious intention, right? But of course there's that fear and there's that concern because it is an unknown. And human beings tend to be a little bit reticent about the unknown. So there were a shit ton of rules and regulations about us who were working there, meeting or consorting with other people on the line. And of course that meant that the moment there's a rule, there's people who were just their asses are just itching to break it. So when I started working at the one line, the offices, I feel free to say this because you know they're no longer there, were on 42nd Street on the east side between Lexington and 3rd, I think. Regular ass office building, you come in. I worked the night shift because A, night person, and B, I was fucking in classes during the day and shit. So I would do whatever I had to do during classes, go to rehearsals for whatever the fuck I was working on, disco nap, and then get up and be in Midtown by midnight to work until 8 a.m. And then I would take a nap and go to class. God damn, I wish I had that energy again. Holy shit. <laughs> There's a really amazing, surreal sensation to getting off of work at 8 a.m. and looking at your coworkers and being like, let's grab a beer. And it's 8.15 a.m. and you're sitting in some like scrody ass bar. Because we were right in Times Square, there were plenty of scrody ass bars. This was the 80s, so you have to remember, this was before douchebag Orama with his melting head became mayor and fucked everything up. Fucking Giuliani. And so there would be like five or six of us after the shift sitting there swapping stories of what sort of maniacs we were dealing with, having a couple drinks and then sliding our asses on home. I actually had that job for a few years. It was not bad at all. What was very interesting was that probably about six months, nine months into this career, one of the supervisors was like, you got the voice, you got the chops, you want to try the phone sex lines. It pays, it paid substantially more than this regular line. So I was like, yeah, let me jump in and see if I can give it a go. I then discovered a very fascinating truth about myself. While I am absolutely sex positive, while I enjoy nasty, freaky shit as much as, or potentially more than the average person, average being in quotes, I was an absolute fucking train wreck at phone sex because I thought the whole thing was so funny. <laughs> I mean, keeping in mind also at this point, I don't think I'd ever had an actual intense phone sex encounter with someone because for me, the good thing about phone sex 
could be, what I discovered later is if it's someone with whom you've actually had sex, having that recollection in the body can bring you back to that moment and that's very exciting for me. I don't have the kink, I don't have the fetish for phone sex with strangers, it wasn't something that ever worked for me. So it always just seemed sort of funny and awkward and I got through a few calls and then I was like, you know what, this is not sustainable, I just, I can't. And so I went back to the regular lines and that was completely fine with me. Over the course of the next couple of years, it was rather amazing the drama that occurred. There was one night we're there, it's about four in the morning, and someone had ordered in for food. Because, of course, it's New York. Fucking get food brought to you any goddamn time you want. And someone went to pick up the food, the delivery guy was there, and she came back in with a weird look and she said, there's someone in the lobby asking for Princess Puff. Now. Obviously, no one who works there is genuinely named Princess Puff. This was like the handle for one of the room monitors, one of the other operators there. And we're all looking around like, that's gotta be a caller. And why is he here? And how does he know where we are, right? Because now we're like, this is creepy. Again, you would have to be super dedicated to figure out where the fuck the offices were because there was no contact information for the offices listed on the on the uh, in the phone book it just had the call in number and there was nowhere to look this up so either someone like had fbi level tracking skills or they'd been told where we were so now one of the soups is on the intercom like talking to this guy like who are you looking for? What's her name though? Because obviously, you know, and he's hedging like, they're like, if you were here to see her and you were actually a friend, you would know who she is. Now this op was not there that night. So we're all sitting in there like eating popcorn, like what the fuck, what's going on? How did this guy figure out? Finally come to find out after the cops show up that this person had been having a whole relationship <laughs> on the phone, of course, with this one operator and had just been overcome with love and just was like showed up to, to find her and to be with her. So needless to say, she was not invited back to work anymore. She was fired like immediately. Cause we're all just like, who the fuck? Why would you be so stupid as to endanger all of us? Like if you had that kind of death wish or that kind of like fuck it, roll the dice, or you truly believe that your gut instinct was so solid that you could invite rando from the party line into our office. There was another night I came in and the regular party line area was a set of cubicles and then the sex line area was another set of cubicles sort of just on the other side of the office. We were just clumped into groups. There's a, a huge separation and there was some overlap because some people would switch back and forth as needed. Like if the one line got really busy and the sex line wasn't really hopping, then they would jump over to the one line and those same people who were already cleared to work on the sex line would sometimes work the one line just to pick up an extra shift and then jump on the sex line if it got busy. And I'll never forget coming in one day and there was one gal who I really liked. She seemed really cool, but a little weird, but cool. But you know, so she was my people. And I come in one night and I saw all of her shit at her cubicle, but I didn't see her. And I was like, well, she must've gone in the bathroom. So like an hour goes by, another hour goes by. And then I'm looking around and she's not in her cubicle. I turn around, I look back and then she is at her cubicle. Now she had not walked up to her cubicle and I had not seen her sitting at her cubicle. So I'm like, I kind of jumped a little bit and I'm like, girl, where the hell were you? She goes, oh, I was just under my desk. And I was like, oh, were you taking a nap? She's like, then she got like hella weird. And I was like, 
why are you under your desk? Is it more comfortable than you have a little cubby hole? So I walk over there and she legit has like a little bed set up under her desk. She's got like a little pillow and a little thing. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, this bitch is clever as hell. She's just napping when the soups aren't there. Yeah, she wasn't napping. <laughs> so a couple nights later, I hear her doing a, a sex call. And I'm looking over and cause of course, like while people on the sex calls, we're all like rolling our eyes and like handing little notes and whatever else. So I hear her on the sex call, but I don't see her. And I tiptoe over to around the side of the desk where she is. And I see that there's like a little blanket over the cubby. So she's in the cubby under her desk with a blanket covering the desk, doing a sex call, like really doing a sex call. Like I'm telling you, she was actually jerking it while she's on the phone with a customer. And my first thing is cool, but like on the floor under the cubby hole, I don't know. It just seemed excessively risky to me. Anyway, I never said anything. I never ratted her hat. She did get called into the office at some point. I think that probably one of the supervisors was monitoring her calls and realized what was going on because shit was just a little too intense, a little too personal. She never got fired, but she did cease and desist with the under the desk wanking activity, which I don't know. I was like, mm. thankfully when the business model moved to people more often working from home and having the calls routed to their home numbers, I think probably that would be a better setup for her because she could just go to town. Because here's my thing. Like, if you're doing phone sex and you are really into that shit and really enjoying it and really getting off, that's like a fucking bonus. That's only amazing and fucking dope. You would think that a company, well, I guess there's some liability. I don't know what sort of masturbation liability there is. <laughs> I lived in New York until 1991 or so, and then my then boyfriend and I moved to Los Angeles to pursue the dream. So we get there, and of course we're broke as hell, and he's on the struggle trying to get some directing jobs and get some cameraman work, and I'm on the struggle doing auditions and gotta get a job. And there's dozens of listings in the LA Times for customer service work, phone work. And of course, t tons of listings for phone sex work and for party line work. And I'm like, look, I'm coming off the party line thing. Let me just jump in and do this. I already have the experience. This will be piece of cake easy. So I interviewed for this job, got hired pretty much on the spot, called my boyfriend from the payphone on the corner and was like, this seems okay. This seems great. I'm going to, I'm starting today. I'm starting right now. So I'll be here until five. And they gave me a quick training and um, the, the office was actually on Hollywood Boulevard and I think Highland Avenue, right near the, uh, near the Walk of Fame and near the uh, big record building. What was that? What was that huge? Capital, maybe Capital Record building? Anyway, very famous corner, very high traffic, very hopping, middle of Hollywood. I'm feeling very glamorous. But the thing about these old Hollywood buildings is that they're old Hollywood buildings. They're not well-maintained. So when you go in there, it's just like a little sketchy, a little depressing feeling. And the tech that they were using was not nearly as advanced as the tech that I'd had back in New York. So I was already a little bit like, oh dear, my goodness gracious. You go in the room, they sit you down at a desk. They gave me a script and the little instructions for the phone thing. And I'm on the phone, I'm doing my thing. 
there was much less privacy at this particular setup than there was at the other place where I was working. There were cubicles, but they were all sort of open. There was just like a wall between the people who were facing each other, but then next to you, the person was just right there, which was a little bit chaotic, but okay, I'm dealing with it. I'm coping with it. I need the money. Sitting across on a couple of seats down from me was this giant redneck. I mean, this dude was huge and very rednecky, but very friendly. Seemed pretty cool. Seemed pretty chill. He's on there like doing the phone sex for the boys. And he wanted to let me know that while he was not gay, he was completely cool with uh, being the straight guy that gay guys were jerking off to. Like that was his shtick is that like he was on the men's line, the men's sex line. And he'd be like the straight boy who was being corrupted by the gays. And I was like, this is hilarious. A couple seats down from him were two big butch dykes and they were both clearly very much in love with one another and could not keep their hands off of each other. Even though we were in the middle of an office and sure, okay, you work in a sex line, maybe you get a bit keyed up, but when your partner is sitting right there, fondling her boobs in front of everyone in the office seems a bit excessive. So I'm sitting here now with absolutely straight redneck and public display of affection mania dykes over here on the other side of me thinking this is gonna be a long shift. So the two gals over here at one point literally start shoving their hands in each other's pants. And I'm sitting there with my jaw on the floor going, wow, you guys, maybe not here. And I'm just like looking, and I guess this wasn't their first day there because everyone else is ignoring them. And I'm thinking, how is this all right? Everyone's ignoring them except giant redneck looks over and is like, hey, you need to cut that shit out. That's gross in the workplace. You shouldn't be doing that. And they're like, you can't be homophobic. And he's like, it's not homophobia. It's gross to do sex stuff in the office. If y'all keep doing that, I'm gonna just fart right here, right now until y'all stop. And I was like, you're gonna, what? And they are laughing and still jerking each other off and making out. And then this guy literally lifts up his cheek and rips out the longest, wettest fart ever. And I'm like, how did he just, then he does it again and again. So apparently he has the capacity to just fart on cue. The two women over here to my right are completely unimpressed by the giant redneck ripping farts. There's no soup anywhere to be found. I walk back out to the payphone and I called Jack, my boyfriend, and I was like, okay, I just quit. So I need for you to come and get me because no, not doing that. <laughs> I finally slid my customer service skill set over to working customer service for banks. I had signed up for a few temp agencies and I kept getting these temp jobs for customer service and they kept trying to hire me like on the spot. They were like, you're really good. You want a job? And I was like, ah. after the third or fourth time and after realizing that I was not going to land my big break in this first few months of being in Los Angeles, apparently, despite my unbelievable talent. So I took a temp job working for First Interstate Bank answering the phones and doing research. And the research was amazing because the research was tracking down some of the people in management who had used expense account funds and had never reimbursed the overpay. 
So I basically just got to go around to a bunch of white men and be like, hey, yeah, you need to pay back this money. Give it to me right now. So I enjoyed that. And then the rest of my day was spent on the phones. I was working for First Interstate Bank for a few months, and then they hired me permanently. And I said, you know what? This is great. I'm on the phones. This is a job I can walk away from totally easily and still focus on my theater and my film shit. This is great. First Interstate Bank was then acquired by Wells Fargo, and Wells Fargo decided to hire me permanently as well. More money, now I have insurance, and since I was now single and on my own, a full-time job was really a blessing because I had that buffer. I worked in Wells Fargo in Southern California for a while, then I moved to Northern California and got an even better job working for an even smaller department than just random customer service. It was a specialized internal customer service group that dealt with really fucked up shit. So we weren't answering calls all the time, but we were dealing with a lot of customers on the phone. And they were always very angry because by the time they got to us, it was an escalation. We were basically the escalation division. And one afternoon I got a call from a guy he uh, was calling. He's like, yeah, so-and-so, here's my account information. He's like, you guys have really screwed up my accounts. Pardon my language, but I was like, that's like, that's all right. As I'm looking at your file, I see that apparently you've been struggling with this issue for the past six months. I was like, that's really inexcusable. I can't, I can't say anything except I'm sorry that the bank has let you down because you've been a customer for so long. And it really sucks that organizations just get so huge that they just stop caring about individual people. And then there was this long pause on the phone and he's like, wow, you're actually a human being. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> so that kind of broke the ice there. And I said, look, this is complicated, but I will personally take a hold of your file and stay with you and stay with this until it's sorted. It's like, great, thank you. Oh my God, it's so great that someone's finally like, taking responsibility for it. And the thing is, in general customer service, individual reps really don't have the authority to do much of anything for you. Pro tip, if you ever have shit you really need done, when you call up a customer service line, do two things. First, get the name of the representative who answered the phone. If they said it, even if you heard it, ask them to repeat it. You want them to know that you know their name and if there is, and ask them if there is a, an ID number associated with them because oftentimes people don't use real names. Then you say to them in the kindest, sweetest voice ever, I'm sure that you have the ability to handle this problem. However, I've been going around for a while. Could you just please put me through to a supervisor? I would really appreciate that. And then they'll try to not do it. And then you just keep your voice sweet and kind and insistent until they put you through to a supervisor. What that does, especially in banking, is it triggers a series of requirements, which means that now your call needs to be documented. And if it's transferred to someone higher, it needs to be notated that you had a pretty serious issue that needed to go higher. So that helps you in terms of having accountability, because as you know, you can just get thrown back in over and over again and have to start from scratch with your shit, which sucks. In banks, there are some things that are compliance issues. They have to do with governmental regulation, and in which case they get escalated because if the bank fucks these things up, the Fed steps in and nobody wants that. So we were sort of the last line of defense between Wells Fargo Bank and the federal government. And this guy had some serious shit on his account. I won't go into detail because it's boring if you're not in banking, but it was a scenario where because of one bank becoming another bank, his accounts kept getting changed. The products were different, but he was getting billed for shit that didn't exist anymore and no one knew how to fix it. 
Now, because I had come from First Interstate Bank, I had some information on the old system, and I was able to go to the Wells Fargo people and say, you need to go back to this old system and do X, Y, and Z in order to fix this, because otherwise it's never going to be repaired, and he's just going to perpetually be bothered by this bullshit. And over the course of like a week, two weeks, a month, two months, where he's calling me every week or so in order to like check up on the status of his accounts and everything else. Of course, personal shit starts breaking in. Oh, where are you from? Where, where do you live? Oh, you have such a lovely voice. You seem so interesting. Oh my gosh, you're so fascinating. God, you're so intelligent. Oh, you like wine. I love wine too. What do you do for a living? Well, you are getting part of it. Oh, I know you're not just a customer service, but well, yes, I'm also an actor. I could tell your voice is just so amazing as it morphs into this sort of of like flirty friendship kind of thing. And then one day we were chatting about travel and I mentioned how much I love to travel and he was mentioning how much he loves to travel, but he travels a great deal for work and it's not always enjoyable. Oh, so what do you do for work? Well, I'm a bounty hunter. Really? Like fucking Boba Fett? And he just died laughing, fell on the ground, dead, like just cracking the fuck up. He's like, first of all, I love that you know that character's name. I'm like, yeah, I'm a bit of, I have a thing. He's like, yeah, sort of like that. Now, keeping in mind also, this was like, what was this? This was 1996? Yeah. So there was no like Dog the Bounty Hunter. There was no like, this had not been like sort of normalized across the entertainment spectrum that bounty hunters were actual people who did actual shit. So now I'm fascinated with this motherfucker. And he's telling me all these stories about his work. And I'm just like, wow, this is amazing. And, and I said, you must have the most interesting stories. He's like, you have some pretty good stories too. Yeah, I do. You know, I am a storyteller, so that's part of my thing. It's like, I could tell you just were so... So the flirtation gets heavier. And then one day he's like, I know this is going to be weird, but I wanted to send you a little gift as a thank you for all the work that you're doing. And I was like, well, I'm technically not allowed to accept gifts. However, knowing your line of work, you could probably find me anyway if you wanted to. So lol. So I was sort of hemmed and hawed around it. But then like later in the conversation, I was like, well, here's my phone number and you can call me directly if you need to. And then we can chat about whatever else. So I gave him my direct number to my office, not at first to my home number, because he'd been just calling in on the open line. And on the office number, at least I had some privacy because those lines were not recorded for legal purposes. So then he gets my address and then sends me a bottle of wine. And it's amazing. It's this rare Hungarian fucking raisin, great raisined grapes. Anyway, I think it's called ice wine, but like usually ice wine is not made with red wine. So it was, I'm just blown away by this. And so now at this point we start chatting, it's getting a little bit intense. It's like four or five months into what's becoming, you know, an online long distance relationship a little bit which is kind of amazing. And I can tell that he's kind of working up to wanting to like see if he could actually say, you know, I'm gonna be in town, I'd like to meet up with you. And I'm just like, okay, let's see how this goes. So one afternoon I'm at work, I'm working late, so I'm off the clock just doing some last minute shit. And he called me, we're on the phone chatting, no one else is in the office and we're talking and he finally said, you know, I would really love to meet you. I just find you endlessly fascinating and I can just tell that we have chemistry. And I said, you know, I think that would actually be really cool. He said, you know, I just, I sit here and I try to imagine what you look like just based on your voice and what I've heard. 
And I was like, oh, really? And he said, yeah. I just, he goes, I know that you just have like the, like these big, beautiful brown eyes. And I'm like, oh, sh- yes. And he's like, and you probably just have like the most gorgeous smile. And I was like, I actually have been told that my smile lights up a room. And he goes, and I already know that you are just brilliant and wise and funny and have an amazing voice. And he goes, and I just, I imagine that you just have this beautiful brunette hair and gorgeous olive skin. And I was like, well, you're going to have to go a little darker on the skin, my friend. And he's like, oh, he goes, oh, where are you from? Are you like, he goes, yeah, are you like Italian, like Southern Italian? And I was like, further south than that as well, I think, if we're talking about the ancestry. And he's like, oh, are you like Egyptian? And I said, no, I, <laughs> I laughed and I said, well, I said, my ancestors might be from that part of the world, but I'm just regular old African-American. And the pause after I said that expanded into this gulf into which my stomach just dropped. And the silence went on and on. And neither of us said anything for almost a minute. So you can imagine how fucking awkward that was. And I finally took a deep breath and said, it sounds like that's a problem for you. And he literally did not know what to say. He sort of stammered and stuttered. And I said, you know, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. And hung up the phone. And I did not hear from him again. And it's interesting how you can have a little piece of your heart, not broken, but bruised by someone you had never even met up to that point. And I thought how fascinating it was that I got caught up (laughs) in having an affair of the heart and mind with a racist. And I wonder to this day whatever happened to him because of that like did it change him in any way i hope so because first of all that's the closest i'm ever going to get to a racist i think and after having weeks of conversations several times a week for hours at a time and sharing such intimate parts of yourself and your thoughts and your hopes and your dreams with someone who clearly thinks that you are not worthy of their love or attention because of your race is fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, I kept working on the phones for a while, but that job was the last job I had where being on the phones regularly was a part of my job. Really amazing times, but the reality is as I got older and as my anxiety grew, I discovered that the That unknown, that moment of what is going to happen now every time the phone rings was a little bit too intense for me, actually, which sounds crazy, right? But it is. I can't think that I would ever take a job where it was required for me to be on the phone all day ever again. Oh, dear goodness me. I'd rather just be moving boxes back and forth all day if I needed to do backbreaking labor ever again or brain-breaking labor, right? Anyway, I love you guys. Thank you for listening today on my history of Mo on the phones. (laughs) I hope you're hanging in there. I hope the heat has not melted you. It is so rough on me, y'all. 
I have to situate my entire life around minimizing being outside when the heat is like this. So I hope that you are safe and in a place where the climate is controllable and not impacting your health. Love you. You've been listening to All That and Mo. Thanks so much for spending your precious, precious time with me today. My podcast is produced by Cody Crabb, theme music by Georg Friedrich Haas, as performed by Marcus Weiss. And I look forward to spending time with you again really soon. 